Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Trash, garbage, litter or rubbish, whatever you call it, the world is producing ever more of the stuff. But where does it all go once it's left our carefully colour-coded bins? And what about all those clothes you leave at the charity shop thinking you've done a good turn? The fascinating tapestry that is the modern waste industry is documented in painstaking, illuminating detail in the new book Wasteland written by our guest this week, the journalist Oliver Franklin Wallace. In the book, he takes us on a journey from hulking mountains of waste on the outskirts of New Delhi to abandoned mining towns in Oklahoma and backstreet repair shops in Ghana, where engineers give new life to millions of the West's discarded gadgets. It was a real pleasure to have Ollie on the podcast to talk through the book, and I hope you all enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Ollie, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thank you very much for being with us. Just for our listeners' sake, who are you and what do you do? What's the day job as well as writing this excellent book about waste? Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. I'm Ollie Franklin Wallace. I'm an author, freelance writer. My day job these days, actually, is I'm the features editor of British GQ, doing all sorts of stuff over there, entertainment, politics, lots of bits and pieces. But this book had a long gestation before that. It's been a journey. Tell us a bit about that gestation. You say in the, um, in the acknowledgements of the book that it started life as a, like a long read. This started, I think it was in 2019, I wrote a piece for The Guardian, because at the time, China, which for a long time, for the last couple of decades, really, had been the uh, main destination for a lot of the world's recyclables, our waste was being sent to China. In 2018, China passed this policy called National Sword, basically slammed its doors shut to most of our waste, which we're shipping and in some cases dumping over there. And it sent ripples through the global recycling and waste industry. So I reported this piece for The Guardian about it. And I remember going to a facility in Essex and talking to the owner there. And at some point he said something like, one day everything you own is going to belong to me. And it was kind of a lighthearted joke, but he also meant it quite profoundly. You know, everything in this room that's sat, that was sat in, everything that the listeners kind of sat in right now, it has to be disposed of by somebody somewhere. And so I kind of became grimly fascinated with this side of the economy that we never really see, which is where everything goes after we're done with it. Yeah, there's a fine line in kind of books that, you know, look at the underwiring of the global economy, and this fits neatly into that. There's so much, there's so many different types of waste uh, that we could get into, you know, nuclear, organic, and you meet some fascinating characters. I just want to talk about why you selected the places that you went to. So you went to India, 
Ghana, Oklahoma, which is a really striking chapter. Why did you choose those countries? Were there kind of practical reasons? Did you think the sort of spread? I mean, what was behind that choice? Well, this is going to be a slightly anticlimactic answer, which is that most of this book was written just before the COVID pandemic happened. And as a result, travel became somewhat limited. So in my initial proposal, there was a bunch of different countries that I wanted to go to that we couldn't get to for practical reasons, China among them. The places that I did go to, I think, do is, is really help tell the story of different kinds of ways. So for example, India, now the world's most populous country, is grappling with its waste in a way that no nation has really otherwise done in a very long time, decades, centuries, with things like the Clean India Program. So I went there to write about that. I also write about the cleaning of the Ganges, you know, when we talk about water and river pollution, which is such a topical issue in this country at the moment. Ghana, because it is the hub of secondhand and used clothing and electronic waste for much of West Africa, it's particularly for the UK and Western Europe. A lot of the things that you send down to the charity shop wind their way to markets in West Africa via Accra and Ghana. So those two chapters take place there. But then, yeah, as you say, it's a bit of a smorgasbord. I went all over the UK from Bristol to Sellafield, the nuclear waste storage facility up in Cumbria. And uh, in the US, Oklahoma was an interesting one because that's the chapter where I grapple with industrial waste and, and in particularly mining waste, uh, which is something that we don't think about waste very much at all, but the real hidden undercurrent in the whole book really is the industrial waste created before our devices or our things get to us. And so I spent a couple of days tramping through some ghost towns in Oklahoma caused by the, the mining boom of the 1920s and 30s there. So that was, uh, it's certainly been a journey, but hopefully yeah. it gives people a global picture. And it's so important to recognize all of these systems, like our global economy, you know, the waste economy is connected. You know, it's not something that can be solved. It's, it's cross borders. It can't be solved independently. And are many things that we throw away, you know, we think that they go in the bin and we think of them have disappeared and solved. And actually for that object, for your plastic bottle or your old pair of trainers, that's quite often the start of a, thou you know, a journey that will last many months and thousands yeah. of miles. So it's really important to try and capture that. Yeah, there's a nice line, I think it's in the epilogue where you say, as far as the earth's concerned, matter is matter. Did you know much about this topic before you embarked on this? I mean, has it been a kind of education for you as well? It's been a huge education. I mean, I, prior to my role at GQ, I, I worked at Wired. And so I had some exposure to the circular economy when, and those discussions. And I'd written about companies that were doing interesting things in that space. But I hadn't really fully got to grips with it until I saw it in person. There's something quite peculiar that happens with this uh, subject matter that I'm kind of, I was reassured when I spoke to other people that worked in the waste business and other you know, activist writers when you start thinking about it, you start to notice it everywhere. Britain in 2023, you don't have to go very far along the street, driving along the highway to see waste is everywhere. It's ever present. We're all creating it all the time. The average person in the UK creates 1.1 kilograms of it per day. In the US, it's two kilograms per day. So there's no shortage of it. Once you start thinking about it and you start seeing the discourse and the dialogue around it, which in many cases are fundamentally broken and distorted by greenwashing and various other things. It did, it kind of <laughs> took a hold of me. And I would tell people, oh, I'm writing a book. And they'd say, well, what's it about? And I'd say rubbish. And you'd see a kind of like slight cringe. They'd be like, oh God, really? But, you know, when you tell them this story and, and you get them engaged on the subject matter, people are fascinated because it's something they do and deal with every day. Everyone's sitting there washing out their yogurt pots in the evening after they've done <laughs> washing up. When I tell them the true story of where it all goes, I think people are shocked and 
and want to take action about it. I don't want to spoil the book. What do you think was the most kind of fascinating or shocking thing that you did see? Because you went to so many cool, interesting places, like you went to Sellafield, the ghost towns in Oklahoma really kind of captured my imagination, but also India, these giant rubbish heaps in India. I mean, which was the thing that made your kind of eyes pop out most? Yeah, I mean, people often tell me that when they see the photos of Ghazipur as the landfill that I went to in, in New Delhi, which is one of these three massive, massive landfills on the outskirts of New Delhi. If I'm right in saying it's 65 metres tall when I was there, it looks like a mountain range. You can see it from miles away. When you're there, there are entire towns of people living around it and on, working on the base, hundreds and possibly thousands, I can't remember the exact figure, of people working on it every day as waste pickers. So when you go there, it, it is astonishing because it's like seeing a landform made out of all the things we throw away and things that people in Delhi throw away the same these days in our globalised economy, the same things that we throw away, in the, whether you're in the UK or the US or China or wherever that may be. So in terms of visceral impact, nothing beats a landfill for sure. There's also, there's something profound about standing on top of, you know, high level nuclear waste in a, in a repository in Sellafield that, you know, is going to still be burning away in 10,000 years underneath your feet. So that's quite interesting. I think for me, and without spoiling it for anyone, the epilogue of the book, I went to the Essex coast back in the UK, so it was a bit more humble. And I went to East Tilbury on the Essex coast, which is where there are some historic landfills that are now sealed that are being eroded away by the river. You can kind of go and see them. And it's a bit like you know, going to see the cliffs and seeing fossils. But in this case, there's old waste from the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s kind of falling, tumbling out of the cliff face. And it was remarkable because I was picking up old newspapers that were perfectly legible that had pictures of Lloyd George in them and old black and white cartoons from the 1930s and things like that, or Paisley ties from the 1960s. It's astonishing to think that these things that, you know, we think, oh, landfill, that's thrown away, it's kind of solved. They're biodegrading and, you know, eventually they'll return to the earth and they won't return to the earth. They're essentially large balloons, as I think I write in the book, or sarcophagi full of our waste. And so to see it kind of come back like a time machine and spreading, in, in many cases, toxicants and chemicals along that coastline and into the wildlife in the surrounding area, really kind of hit home the urgency of this problem. And the fact that if we don't solve it, you know, it'll be our waste in 50, 60, 70, 80 years that people are digging out of the hillside. There's plenty of very alarming stuff in this book about all the different chemicals. I think that particularly some of the stuff in, in India about puddles glowing green. And one of the things I liked about the book is that it is balanced. It's not just a screed the title sounds quite foreboding, but you also talk about all these like pretty incredible technological fixes, you know, for various things. I mean, which of the kind of tech solutions to waste do you think is the one that's most kind of exciting? I was thinking of, say, burning waste for energy, for example. You're right in saying that. And actually, it's been astonishing to see speed of change around the subject that's happened since I set about writing this book. You know, I first started reporting this book in 2019. So sitting here, five years later, it is really remarkable to see, for example, recycling technology, which the old fashioned ways of doing recycling plastics, for example, are incredibly crude. You know, essentially, we're just putting it in a big pot and washing it and melting it back down again. They've also incredibly flawed, you know, the recycling, we, we can maybe talk about it in a minute, but recycling when it comes to plastics is an incredibly flawed and misleading thing that has its roots in greenwashing in the 1950s by big packaging companies. It now is a multi, multi-billion dollar global industry that is driving jobs and a huge amount of innovation in textiles, for example. To see some of those things, there are researchers now uh, looking at bacteria to break down different types of 
classics that we couldn't do before. There's all sorts of work going on in compostables. British company, for example, Grey Parrot AI, that are using AI to sort through our recycling with a much higher efficacy rate than it's possible to do with human hands. There is hope in this story throughout, and I hope that people will kind of latch onto that and it will encourage more of them. Like I said, it's alarming, but it's not kind of hopeless. You know, you don't get the sense that a lot of game is up. One thing I like about it as well is that, and we've run a few articles about this sort of thing, that a lot of things that people think are green are either just like flatly not, so you talk about biodegradable plastics that don't degrade, that's a good example, or give you the illusion of greenness. So I'm thinking about tote bags. How much of this do you think is about kind of educating people about, because it's quite difficult to think that many stages, you know, should I use a tote bag? Because actually growing cotton loses a lot of energy and water. How tricky do you think this is as a kind of comms problem? It's an interesting one, isn't it? So, you know, you use the example of tote bags, which is a famous one, to, you know, in, in order to, in terms of when you look at the carbon life cycle or the life cycle analysis of a organic cotton tote bag, for example, to carry around your Tesco shopping is, I think it's around 11,000 times you have to use it before it's greener than using a plastic bag. Most people will not be alive long enough to use, the, <laughs> use their shopping bag that many times. What I really struggled with throughout this journey is knowing what are genuine solutions versus what are marketing solutions. And often the innovation is happening in the marketing department after these things are already being made. And you know, I use, for example, you mentioned it there, compostables during the pandemic, everywhere, every pub and person near me switched all of their plastic and their coffee cups to compostables. And they said, oh, oh fantastic. You can you know, throw it away in the compost heap. But no, they weren't compostable. And actually, the latest research shows that Almost all compostable plastics, as they are marketed, do not compost in everyday conditions. They're designed to compost in commercial composting facilities, of which in the UK there are very few. And the composting facilities in the UK that do exist, most of them don't actually accept these plastics because they're unpredictable, they ruin the compost in a lot of cases. But you still have companies, you know, there's a story in the book that we're sitting here not that far from Westminster, the Palace of Westminster switched to a compostable plastics brand except they hadn't thought about the fact that there is no compostable plastics collection anywhere in the country. So all of those compostable plastics were going to be incinerated. That's universal around the entire country. You have companies selling commercially compostable plastic bags and compostable cups and no way to collect them. There's just not, no infrastructure there. So it's just greenwashing. I'm pleased to say that some of those companies have now at least changed their branding so that when you buy certain cups or you get them in the public, they'll say commercially compostable where available, I think is the new language. But of course, they're still not being collected by the pubs at the end of the day. So they're not being composted at all. We need to have an honest discussion about how to fix those problems. It wouldn't be difficult to put that infrastructure in, in place in this country. Like We should 100% have a robust waste collection system that can solve compostable plastics because where it is available, they're better for the planet. So we need to be able to solve that problem. But companies can't be going out there marketing them as a solution when they're actually worse than the thing they're designed to replace, which in so many cases in this journey was unfortunate. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. True. Yeah, I mean, we sort of touched on there with things like coffee cups, but do you think that we perhaps, both in the media and as individuals, concentrate too much on our own habits compared to the vast amount of waste that is created in industrial processes and so on. I mean, if we wanted to make a dent in this problem, is it not industry and manufacturing and so on that really need to be at the forefront of that? It touches on another point you make, which is about the lack of data. So we don't really know what the proportion is, but I think the figure you had was 11.8% of UK's household waste and the rest is industrial. Yeah. So, I mean, if I really had to preach one thing from the rooftops or kind of hammer anything home in this book, it's that the overwhelming majority of waste that we create worldwide is not created by individuals. It's created in industrial settings. It's in factories. It's in mining you know, facilities. It's in the fossil fuels industry. What has happened since the 1950s, and you know, I write about this in the book, starting with the Keeping America Beautiful and Keep Britain Tidy tile campaigns, which started back there, is that there was a concerted effort, largely led by industry, to place the onus of waste disposal and processing on us as individuals. You know, they coined the phrase littering. There was a lot of littering campaigns which said, oh, you know, it's all your fault. The reality is, is that they were pumping millions and millions and millions of single-use plastic items into a world that just didn't have the infrastructure to deal with it. We as people didn't really understand what they were doing to our health or to the planet. It's been incredibly successful, don't get me wrong, and I, and I don't want to excuse littering, you shouldn't do it, and all those kind of things. But it reframed the environmental discussion. You know, I talk about the history of the carbon footprint as a classic example. You know, carbon footprint was created by a petrochemicals company as a way of you know, passing on individual responsibility. I sometimes joke in talks to people, the biggest thing that you can do to affect the waste crisis is not buy a reusable coffee cup, it's not decisions that you make at home, it's decisions that you make at work or in the boardroom. The idea that we're going to buy our way out of the problem by buying recycled trainers is just an excuse to make us buy more things. It's not solving the problem in the slightest. And I don't want to harp on about the ethical complexities of the circular economy. If I have one criticism of the circular economy, it's that it encourages us to just buy more and more things and kind of keep the cycle going when... The reality is there's that the waste is happening in the making of the things in the first place. Yeah, I mean, there's another aspect of the book I found fascinating. I'm looking just looking across the room here at a laptop and all I can see is workshop somewhere in West Africa pulling it apart after reading this. I had no real idea about what kind of happens when we export waste. But 
there's a whole, not even really a circular economy, sort of downstream economy in countries, especially in Ghana, perhaps other West African countries, perhaps I think in Nigeria, there's also a very kind of vibrant tech sector. How much of a handle do you think the average Western consumer has on, on this? And do you think it would make any difference if we knew that this stuff was going somewhere? I truly think that most people have no idea. When I say to people, okay, you know, when you go to the charity shop and you dump them a big bag of clothes, you know, that they don't sell them in that charity shop, most people have no idea. They think that, you, they, you know, everything that you give to the charity shop is resold in that shop. But the stuff that you donate is carted off to a factory and only the really top level premium things that they think can be resold for high prices kept in store and, and in the UK. And the rest of it goes to processors who grade it by quality. And based on that grade, it will be sold onto the international used market, whether that's clothing or textiles or whatever it might be. So I think I write in the book, they have, and these are not official designations, but they refer to things as West African grade or Pakistani grade. And what they're really doing there is saying, is talking about price, because the poorest countries in the world, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, these kinds of places need clothes to wear too. And the only thing that can really afford to import en masse is the very lowest of the low that we give to charity shops in a lot of cases. So that's millions of tons of items. And it's not just an African problem. This happens all over the world, Southeast Asia, Central America. So the first step is telling people and explaining that that's the reality. And then you get this very interesting question is, okay, well, is that ethical? Is it ethical to, I think it's unhelpful in some cases that the environmental movement quite often describes this as dumping. You know, you, you say we're dumping our waste on West Africa. Let's stay with the laptop example, because I think it will help to provide some consistency. Oh, you're dumping electronic waste. There's this phrase, waste colonialism. I found in my reporting, and I'm not the first person to say this, there are other academics and campaigners who've kind of pointed out, but when you call that dumping, it kind of robs the people doing the importing of agency. The reality is, is that the markets in West Africa want these devices. They have the skills to repair them. In a lot of cases, they were saying that, you know, if they can buy a second-hand Dell, it will be of a higher quality and last longer than them buying a laptop that's, you know, cheaply imported from China, for example, because that's the reality of what they're competing with. They're competing with brand new, low-quality, cheap imports of new devices. But actually, in a lot of cases, having something that's second-hand but can be repaired over and over again and might have a lifespan of 10 years or so is a more sustainable thing to do. And it's arguably the ethical thing to do as well. So I'm really interested in, in how we kind of have that discussion in a nuanced way. People really underestimate the value of the skills that those kind of industries create and engender, you know, the ability to repair and fix things. I didn't really have the space to go into this in the book. South China was for two decades the central hub of all of e-waste exports. It was ecologically devastating for many parts of South China and Guangzhou and places like that. I'm not doubting that it was an environmental catastrophe and there were generations of kids whose blood were poisoned by the importation and the processing of waste that was going on there. Now, there's a second part to that picture, which is that the technical skills and the industrial growth created by there helped to bring up a generation of technically savvy computer experts in South China, in cities around Shenzhen and places like that which is now the most advanced industrial manufacturing hub on planet Earth. With It is astonishingly, there are cases in China of former waste importers who now run electronics businesses that export to the whole world. So it's a bit more nuanced than saying we're just dumping it on places. 
the question is how we do it ethically, how we do it with environmental sustainability in mind so that we're looking after everyone throughout the whole process. Making sure that what we send them isn't useless junk. And I think that's the important thing is that often, particularly in the cases of clothing, we are literally sending them rubbish and it ends up blocking African landfills and things like that with stuff that should be processed safely here. I think it is more complicated than often things like to appear. And maybe sometimes people like authors and campaigners to have a really simple message and just say, you know, here's how we should solve the problem. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I know a simple solution to some of these questions, but I think we should all be thinking about them every day. Yeah, it's a sort of feature of social media as well. Everything is black, white, tragedy or triumph and <laughs> never the twain shall meet. I wonder if you agree that there's sort of, it strikes me that there's a bit of a paradox here in the sense that wealth creation is both cause and solution of this problem. We talk about the average American producing two kilos of waste, but it's also in America that you see some incredible tech and you know, cleanup efforts as well. And it strikes me that it's only really wealthy countries who have enough resources to actually deal with this problem properly. So we talk about Finland, for example, being the only place that has a geo storage facility for nuclear waste. I mean, do you think in the longer term that a wealthier world is going to end up being cleaner and better at dealing with this stuff? No, not necessarily just through dint of growth, because the wealthier you are, the more you throw away. The US is a large country. Its waste processing is terrible. Its recycling rate is horrendous. It landfills pretty much everything because it's got lots of land and cheap space. And I don't think that that is necessarily true. I do think that stopping everyone from buying every new thing in the world is, is unrealistic. And you know, while I do think that we need to buy fewer things and buy higher quality things, and in doing so, recreate something that I think we've lost in the last century with mechanization, which is the return of repair and upkeep skills. You know, I think I write this in the book, but in recycling, I think the statistic is create 70 jobs for every one created by landfill or incineration. So there is growth potential in doing this and tremendous technical skill in, you know, repair cafes and things all over the country. You know, you go and meet those people. They're some of the most capable engineers that you've ever met. I don't want to wade into economics debates around growth and degrowth and all those kind of things because it's really not my field. So I'll leave that to other people. But what I do think is that richer companies get, and a lot of the growth, both economic and of our waste in the world is happening in the global south at the moment, or it's happening in rapidly industrializing countries who need solutions to these problems and they need innovative solutions. I think the more that we can expand awareness of this issue in countries like India, for example, in countries like Nigeria, where you've got population booms and therefore waste booms, finding sustainable ways for them to deal with this problem is going to be crucial, not just for them, but for us all. And it doesn't really matter where those solutions come from. It what matters is where they're enacted. Let's come on to sort of, since you wrote the book, there's been quite a lot of, sort of change in this field. You mentioned that earlier. And what, do you, what are the kind of big things that have happened in the last few years to address some of the problems that you talk about? One thing that I was very conscious, the book talks about the global picture a lot. I didn't really wade into individual policies because the field is moving so quickly. And one way to make your book really redundant very quickly is to write about politics, as the biographers of Liz Truss know. The pace of change around this issue has really been astonishing to see. So for example, in the UK, we had the Environment Bill a couple of years ago introduced or tried to introduce things like the deposit return scheme in the UK, which is where you'll pay a deposit on certain uh, goods, glass, plastics, when you buy them, and then you get the deposit back when you return them for recycling. Now, unfortunately, the packaging industry 
hates that legislation. The waste industry hates that legislation. And there are lots of complexities in introducing it. And so it's been repeatedly kicked into the long grass. Most recently in Scotland, it was meant to be introduced. Whether that actually ever happens, we will wait and see. But in other places, there's been tremendous reform. France has passed right to repair legislation. There's right to repair legislation happening across the US. Uh, Right now, the UN is debating a plastics treaty and forming a plastics treaty, which would be an astonishing landmark piece of work, both environmentally and for our waste economy. It's been really exciting to see. I do worry sometimes that corporate interests can sometimes distort these bills and make them ineffectual. And there are various examples of that over the years. Overall, I'm feeling very positive about the picture of change at the moment. The important thing now is that we make sure that changes that we're making aren't just limited to the richest countries and those that can afford to have things like deposit return schemes and that we're... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Helping the, you know, the economies in West Africa where we're filling their landfills full of our H&M, you know, like it can't just be one thing for us and then a terrible experience for anyone living under the poverty line. You know, we want to make it sure it's equitable for everybody. Well, Ollie, I like to end the uh, podcast on a positive note, and you've done so nicely for us there. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Ollie's book, Wasteland, is out now in all good bookshops and online or wherever you like to get your books. Thank you all at home as ever for listening to the CapEx podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do share or just old-fashioned word of mouth and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. <laughs> <laughs>